You're listening to audio from Christ Community Church in Fishers, Indiana. Our mission is to develop disciples of Jesus to impact the world. If you'd like to find out more information about us or donate to our ministry, please visit us at our website at cccfishers.org. Thanks for joining us. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. All right, Acts chapter 13. I want to do something a little bit different this morning. It's going to feel weird, maybe up front, but by the end of the sermon, maybe, maybe it'll make just a little bit of sense. I want to start in the middle of Acts 13, and then I want to come back to it. We'll talk about it a little bit, and then we're going to go all the way back to the beginning. So Acts chapter 13, and we're going to start at verse 13. This is going to be a lot of reading, uh, but again, it just gives us the context, and frankly, the Bible says more important things than I ever do, so if I spend more time reading the Bible, it's just, I'm okay with that. So, verse 13, from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left, excuse me, just real quick a minute, there we go, let's try that, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went to Pisidian Antioch, or Pis- yeah, Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of expor- exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites, you and the, uh, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus... John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you are looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am unworthy to tie or to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and the rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. 
They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, I will not let your holy one see decay. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. When Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, or then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first, since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. Now we turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored by the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they, took the dust, so they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to grab that mic back there. All right, there we go. All right, that's a whole lot that's happening in there. What I want us to focus on is this. Paul and Barnabas traveled to Antioch Pisidian or Antioch Pisidia. Pisidia. Antioch Pisidia is one of three cities that we'll hear in the New Testament that's referred to as Antioch. All of these cities were named after the Seleucid king Antiochus, Antiochus the Great, who came a few kings after Alexander the King, uh, Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great, the, the great king of the Greek Empire, right? And then Antiochus comes after him, gets three cities in this region of like what is Asia Minor, gets three cities named after him. Antioch Pisidia is one of them. Now, Antioch Pisidia is north of the city of Perga. Perga exists right on the Mediterranean Ocean. And then Antioch Pisidia is just a few miles north of it. What makes it really interesting is that the road that went from Perga to Antioch Pisidia 
was one that was surrounded by steep mountains. It kind of ran through this valley, had steep mountains on either side. And because of that, it was a place that was known for a lot of robbers. It was an extremely dangerous road. And it's one reason that scholars believe Mark, John Mark may have uh, left Paul and Barnabas. So we're told right at the beginning of verse 13, Paul and Barnabas, they go to Perga, they're going up to Antioch, Pisidia, but then John Mark leaves them. We're not 100% sure why John Mark leaves them, but one reason is perhaps this road, that it freaked him out just a little bit. In fact, some scholars believe that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, where you can put that up on the screen, Paul says this, he says, I've constantly been on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. Some scholars believe that when Paul is referencing bandits and country, he's actually thinking of this road from Perga to Antioch, Pisidia. All right? Kind of fascinating. Now, when they get to the city, they do what they have been doing up and throughout the book of Acts. They go to a synagogue. Now, every synagogue would be much like a church that we have today. There would be a ruler or a leader who would oversee the worship that happens on the Sabbath in the synagogue. And oftentimes, they themselves would deliver a sermon or a homily of some sort, but they might invite other people from the congregation to say something and address everyone there, or they might bring in a guest speaker. Or if someone was traveling through, they may ask that person to speak a word of encouragement to those who are in the synagogue. This is especially true if there's a notable person, right? They'd invite them up. Hey, would you say something? Encourage the believers here, the, the, the people here. Now, it may seem strange to us that the leader of the synagogue invites Paul to address the people in the synagogue. You know, for us, a couple thousand years removed, it seems like there is this conflict between the Christians and the Jewish and religious, the, the, the religious authorities. So why would these religious leaders be inviting Saul or Paul to come and to preach? Well, the reason you got to remember, and we've been saying this throughout the book of Acts, is that Christianity, or what was more likely known at this point, the way wasn't seen as a separate religion. It was a, it was a sect. It was a group within Judaism. And so for most people, yeah, they believe Jesus, or maybe they didn't even know that, but they're still Jews. And so Paul, having come to the synagogue, gets invited to speak because he is a respected rabbi. He's got some notoriety. He's trained under Gamaliel. And this guy knows his stuff. What an honor it would be for him to speak. This would be like if Tim Keller or Beth Moore were here in church. You better believe I'd be like, here's the mic. Right? Like, I'm going to let them speak because they have, they're, they're known. They have some rapport. In the same way, Saul, Paul, would have that same. So he gets invited to speak, comes up, and he begins to preach. Now, what's interesting is if you stop and just examine the sermon that Paul preaches and think about what we might expect from someone like Paul who has the, the opportunity to preach the gospel, what we would expect 
Paul to say because of what we have heard through much of our lives. And then take that and compare it to what Paul actually says. You see, what we expect is something that longs of, let me tell you how to get to heaven when you die. Right? Like, there is sin. It separates us from God. It keeps us from eternal life. If you uh, continue on in the path or our sin is deserving of death or even hell, therefore, to avoid that, here's how you get to heaven. Paul doesn't do that at all. Paul's understanding of the gospel is very different than ours. Ours is an is a, is a understanding of the gospel that is focused on life being saved after death. And that's typically how we present it. Do you want to be saved from hell? Or do you want to have eternal life? When I was in college, I went on a mission trip to New York City. And one day while we were there, we just followed around a street evangelist, uh, seeing the work that he did and, and how he did it. And I, re- I had a couple of memories that are pretty distinct. There was one point where we got on the subway, the subway doors closed, the train begins to move, and he's now got a captive a- audience, and he just begins to shout, and he begins asking questions like, if this train were to crash because that's what everybody wants to hear. If this train were to crash, do you know where you would go? And then he would say, if you don't, you should know Jesus, right? I remember there was another time where there was a guy reading like a map of the subway or whatever, and he goes up to him, he's like, um, could you tell me uh, on that map, could you tell me how to get to heaven? Guy kind of looks at him and he's like, but you, you have a map, doesn't that, doesn't that explain how to get places? Do, do you know how to get to heaven using that map? I was like, no. And then he says, well, you should know Jesus and does the whole thing, right? This is what we often think of when we think of what it means to preach the gospel. But that's not what Paul does. Paul talks about salvation, but he roots it not in the feelings of guilt or fear of hell or the hope of heaven. Instead, he roots salvation in history. And in particular, the history of Israel. God chose our ancestors and made us a people. God rescued us from Egypt and led us through the wilderness and then brought us into the promised land. God then raised up judges to rule over us. And then the people cried out for a king, so God gave them Saul. And then God gave them David. And David, David was a unique person because David was a man after God's own heart. And so God promised that one day a Messiah would come who would be in the line of David who would save Israel. And then John the Baptist came and John confirmed that this Messiah that God promised to raise up is Jesus Christ. And so then look at verse 32, what Paul says there. We tell you the good news. What God promised to our ancestors, he fulfilled in us, for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. That's the good news. Through Jesus, we are saved. Through Jesus, we have forgiveness of sin. Through Jesus, we have something that Moses and the law could not bring. Through Jesus, we have the fulfillment of the long-range divine plan of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus is its king. This is the good news that Paul was proclaiming. And yes, it includes the forgiveness of sins. And yes, it includes the eternal life eternal with God. But those exist, the forgiveness of sin and life eternal exist 
because the kingdom of God has been established in Jesus. And it's not something that's established for far off. That kingdom is not just for when we die. But it's here, now, on earth. And it rises up out of history. I think that's what Saul's, Paul, what his sermon does so beautifully. Is it shows us, reveals to us, the God who is not far off, but the God who is working in our world, in our lives, in history. It's a reminder, his sermon is, it's a reminder that heaven and earth are not meant to be separate. They are meant to coexist, to co-mingle, to interact with one another. God and humans are not meant to be separate, but are meant to be intimate and connected. And so by reaching back in history and reminding the people of all that God had been doing in and through Israel, Paul's sermon reinforces that God is revealed through the divine action in the world. We know God because of how God has acted in this life, in our history. And the action that we see in history tells us who God is. It tells us what God has been doing and is doing and will do. History matters. And in that history, we see our salvation. And here's where it gets really, really interesting. The church has a unique and intimate role in cooperating with God's action in history. Let's go back to the beginning of Acts chapter 5. Or 13. The beginning of Acts chapter 13. We're going to read the first five verses. That's where I got that. Now, in the church at Antioch, this is the original Antioch, In the church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they, the disciples, the church, placed their hands on them, Saul and Barnabas, and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. Now, if you remember from a few weeks ago, we talked about the church in Antioch, and we talked about it as this diverse and vibrant congregation in what is modern-day Turkey. And, and, and we can see here again, and we talked about it there, but this leadership is just so fascinatingly diverse. You've got Barnabas, who is a Jew from Cyprus. You've got Simeon the Niger, which literally means Simeon the Black. He is someone from Africa. You've got Lucius from Cyrene, which is in modern-day Libya. You've got Menean, or Menean, who is a lifelong uh, friend of Herod the Tetrarch, which means that his family is politically connected and that he is probably very wealthy. And then you've got Paul, this highly educated rabbi who once persecuted the church. 
This is the leadership in Antioch. It's just fascinating. Now, the church is praying and fasting, and they hear the Holy Spirit say, we, uh, the Holy Spirit, I am setting apart Saul and Barnabas. So the church then lays hands on Saul and Barnabas and sends them out. Okay? And what you got to do here is you got to take verses 3 and 4. That was verse 3. And you got to put it up next together with verse 4. And when you do that, you can see this very unique and cooperative relationship between the church and the Holy Spirit. Verse 3, so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Verse 4, the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. In one verse, we're told that the church is sending out Saul and Barnabas. And in the, next, the very next verse, we're told that the Holy Spirit is sending them out. Now, some think Luke messed up here. That he was, this inconsistency was an accident and that he meant the Holy Spirit or he meant the church or whatever. I don't think it's a mistake. I think this is actually what Luke intended. Because I think Luke is revealing something about the nature of the relationship between the Holy Spirit and the church. Willie James Jennings writes about this in, in this moment in Acts. And he says this, The voice of the Spirit and the voices of the disciples are together but not confused. The agency of one does not negate the action of another. In other words, the Spirit of God speaks. The church listens, and then speaks those same words and acts in a way that mirrors the action of God. Both are acting distinctly, but both are acting in harmony with, with one another. The Spirit initiates, the church follows, but both are doing the same thing. So when the Spirit of God says, I desire that all might be saved, the church hears and responds by saying, we desire that all might be saved. And then we act and embody that desire all the while God is simultaneously going before us to bring salvation to all people to all, at the ends of the earth. When the Spirit of God says, I desire that justice would roll on like a river, the church hears and says, we desire that justice would roll on like a river, and then we act in such a way to see God's justice on earth as it is in heaven, even as God brings that justice on earth as it is in heaven. When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, the church says, Jesus is the way, and then acts so that everyone might recognize the truth of Jesus as the way, even as God lifts up and glorifies his Son. Matthew Skinner, he says it like this. The church does not merely imitate the Spirit's action. It performs it, serving as the means by which the Spirit works towards God's ends. It is a cooperative, integrated partnership. This cooperation between the church and the Spirit, maybe it seems strange to us. Maybe it seems like it's a, like a fantasy. But what I want 
I want, and I believe what Luke wants us to see, is that it can happen, and happens more than we think that it does. The church can act in line with God's intent and perform the actions of the Spirit. And not only can the church do this, but I would say that the church often does this. And sometimes in ways that we don't even recognize that we are cooperating with the Spirit. When we ordain and install elders, deacons, and pastors, we are acting in a line and performing the actions of a God who calls, equips, and empowers people to ministry. When we seek to come alongside of families and help our community, we are acting in line with a God who works in this world and has prepared his people in advance to do good works. When we proclaim the gospel and point people to Jesus crucified, we are acting in a line with a God who uses the cross to save people. And for all of the foibles and the mistakes and the messiness of the church, the church still has a unique relationship and cooperates with the Spirit in a way that, in a way that can't be mimicked <laughs> by trying to follow Jesus alone in life. Church may be hard. And we may have baggage when it comes to this thing that we call church, but at the same time, this gathered community of sinners and saints mysteriously participates in revealing God's manifold wisdom to the world. Which is why I can't give up on church. And I admit that maybe I feel differently about it all because I am a pastor. In a, in a unique way, I have felt the Spirit call me to ministry. And I have felt the weight of the church's hands on my shoulders as the church called me to ministry. And so the reality of verses 3 and 4 of the church sending and the spirit sending, the, the reality of both of those operating together are in me in a very unique way. I recognize that. But I also believe fully that that, that truth, that reality of spirit and church operating together isn't something that's meant just for pastors. I think this is the reality for the whole church. And when we as, when we as a church baptize someone, we gather around them and we place water either on their heads if they're children or we plunge them deep into the waters if they're a little older and we declare and enact what the spirit has already done. We aren't doing something that's separate and distinct from God. We are embodying in the physical realm what has already taken place in the spiritual world. When we celebrate the repentance of a sinner, the coming home of a prodigal, we are embodying the rejoicing that is happening in heaven. When we feed the hungry and we clothe the poor, we are imitating the Spirit's work that oversees all of creation and ensures that even the lilies of the field and the sparrows of the air are cared for. When we welcome new members, either in baptism or in profession of faith, we are acting in accordance with the God who adopts people into God's family. 
When we work for unity, we join the Spirit in fulfilling Jesus' last prayer. Church and Spirit, yes, they're distinct and separate, but they are also somehow uniquely cooperative. The church is never just over here doing its own thing and the Spirit over here doing its own thing. But instead, church and Spirit come together so that God's nature and God's work is revealed in history. Together, church and Spirit are seeking to accomplish one thing, the proclamation of God's salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. Together, church and Spirit are doing that thing. And we proclaim with the Spirit that Christ has come in history. And we proclaim that God revealed Himself in Jesus of Nazareth. And that Jesus' action in the world, or in Jesus' action in the world, God seems, God reveals Himself to be unconditionally loving, faithful beyond comprehension, and a bringer of freedom. This is what God is doing. This is what the Spirit is directing and orchestrating and acting towards. And the church listens to the Spirit, discerns where the Spirit is working, and then adds, yes, we are about that too. And we will work towards it. When we proclaim the gospel of Jesus, we are never just proclaiming theological propositions. We are never just talking about beliefs that people have to ascribe to. We are pointing people to the God who acts in history. This is, and, the, and the God who acts in history is establishing his kingdom. The kingdom of God has come. This is the good news. And with that comes the salvation of forgiveness of sins. And with that comes the salvation of freedom from death. Yes, and amen. And that begins here and now. And we get to proclaim that by saying, look, look at what the Spirit of God has been doing. Look at how God has been at work in history. Look at what God did at the cross. Look at what God did in the resurrection. Look at what God has been doing through the book of Acts. Look at what God did in the 1500s. Look at what God did in the 1800s. Look at what God did in the 1950s. Look at what God did in 1980 when he started this church. Look at what God has done now that we have a preschool and we have people graduating. Look at what God has done. This is what it means to be witnesses. It is to proclaim the good news that you and I have experienced in our lives. Not just, well, this is how you get to heaven. As wonderful as that is. But we get to say, this is the God who will save you here and now. This is the God who will bring something new here and now. This is the God who is at work in this world. And you can see this work in the church. And so as a church, I pray that we would be constantly discerning where the Spirit of God is at work. I pray that we would be a people marked by prayer and listening and then acting and embodying what we hear. And my prayer is that in all that we do, May it be in cooperation and in harmony with the Spirit of God. Let's pray.
Father, we give you thanks that you work in history and that you are drawing history into yourself. Meaning that you are drawing history towards that moment in which your kingdom is established fully. It surrounds us and engulfs us and we know the fullness of it. We pray that until that time is realized that we would be a people who listen well to the Spirit. And that we actively embody and cooperate with all that you are doing. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.